Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. On Friday's podcast, I speculated that potentially we could see a gap up in the price of gold, gapping above the 1350 resistance level that has capped every gold rally for the past six years. But gold actually gapped in the other direction. It gapped down about $13, and it was down all day, never filled that gap. The catalyst for the gold sell-off was Donald Trump calling off the tariffs that were supposed to go into effect today, the 5% across-the-board tariffs on Mexico. And that announcement came out on Friday, pretty much right after I finished recording my podcast. We got the news. So I immediately knew that that forecast probably was not going to come to fruition, or that speculation, potentially, because I knew the markets would react positively to this news. After all, everybody was rightly worried about the negative impacts that those tariffs would have on the U.S. economy in particular. They weren't probably as worried uh, about Mexico, at least when it comes to the gold market, but they were worried about how it would impact the U.S. economy. And of course, one of the reasons, and of course there are many, but one of the reasons that the Fed is talking about cutting rates is because of all the uncertainty that is being created because of tariffs. And if there aren't going to be as many tariffs, if the Mexico tariffs aren't going to actually happen, well, then that's one less thing to worry about. And maybe that's one less reason for the Fed to cut rates. And of course, cutting rates is part of the reason that people have been buying gold. The reason we had that big eight-day rally Uh, which came to an end today. We didn't make it nine consecutive days. But what's been powering the gold rally is the talk of Fed rate cuts. Now, I don't think today's sell-off is going to be significant. It's just one more time we knocked on that resistance door and it didn't open, but it is going to open ultimately because at the end of the day, the Mexican tariffs are a sideshow. The main event is that the U.S. economy is going into recession anyway and the rate cuts are coming. The tariffs are not the determining factor, at least even even the ones on China, right, which we still have to deal with, right? Those ones are not off the table. In fact, the president was talking even tougher on China today. But we're going into recession regardless, even if no tariffs were ever implemented, just that the tariffs do kind of create a convenient excuse for the Fed to try to blame uh, you know, uh, the slowdown on the tariffs or try to give themselves an out for why they're reversing course and cutting rates, they can say, well, you know, it's all an insurance policy against the unknowns that might come from a slowdown globally, not a slowdown in the U.S., but some kind of global slowdown that somehow might impact the U.S. And so kind of 
to inoculate us against catching that foreign disease, right? It kind of takes the heat off of them if they can pretend that whatever we're getting, uh, we caught from overseas. And so we're just going to get an insurance policy and inoculation. But the diffusing of a little bit of that tension is what uh, caused the gold market to go down. And of course, also the stock market rallied, right? The U.S. stock market breathed a sigh of relief because the tariffs are not going to be implemented. I think investors, most investors understood, despite the rhetoric coming out of the White House, that American consumers pay the tariffs, not uh, Mexicans. And so the fact that this tax hike is not going to take place was, was a positive. And the U.S. stock market gapped open. The Dow was up, I think, 200 points or so off the open, maybe a little bit under. But the high of the day on the Dow was up 226 points. What's significant is that we did not build on those early morning gains. In fact, we went out near the lows of the day, if not almost the low of the day. I mean, the Dow was still positive, 78 points. But to me, I think it was a technically weak day. The fact that this good news did not produce a more significant rally is bad news. Now, I do believe that some of the rally happened last week. I mean, one of the reasons, particularly on Friday, I think, for the rally in the U.S. stock market, and one of the reasons that gold sold off so much from its highs on Friday was I think a lot of traders were correctly speculating uh, that Trump wasn't going to uh, go through with the Mexico tariffs because there was only one more day, and I think people were betting that the tariffs wouldn't happen, and we were going to know for sure on Monday, because today was the day that they were going to be enacted. Now, I don't know if somebody leaked some information from the White House uh, about that, or just people were just making a smart guess. Uh, so that might also be one of the reasons that we didn't get a bigger rally today, is because we already got the rally last week. But nonetheless, I still think it is a, a technically weak day for the market, and my guess would be that we're going to sell off uh, tomorrow uh, and probably. Uh, for most of this week as a result of the week showing today, because if we couldn't really rally on good news, well, the rally is over. And by the way, I don't know how good the deal is, uh, because I personally think that the New York Times is on to something, because over the weekend, the Times came out and wrote a story which the president has already criticized as being fake news. But the New York Times basically said that the whole deal is BS. Because the Times is saying that everything that Mexico agreed to do were concessions that they had already made months ago during you know prior negotiations. That all the stuff that they're going to do, whatever it is, they were already going to do it, right? They'd already agreed to it. And so the deal is really a non-deal because all we're getting is what Mexico had already offered prior to Trump threatening the tariffs. Now, Trump is coming out and saying, that's nonsense. I mean, maybe we did negotiate this stuff, but, you know, Mexico was dragging their feet. They hadn't actually implemented it, and now they're going to do that, and they wouldn't have done it but for the threat of these tariffs. But I don't buy that. I mean, I think it makes a lot more sense to me that the president was looking for a graceful way out. Right? This was a crisis of his own making. This was a bomb that needed to be diffused, but he set the bomb. And I think this was a face-saving way to get out of it by, by claiming a victory rather than accepting defeat, because I think Trump probably figured out, based on what he was hearing from economic advisors or other Republican politicians, 
that these tariffs were a bad deal, that they were going to be bad for the U.S., they were going to be bad for the U.S. economy. Plus, remember, he got that weak jobs report on Friday. So he's got a weak jobs report. He doesn't want to weaken a weakening economy, at least, you know, I mean, he does want to get reelected. So I think he didn't want the tariffs, but, you know, he put himself into a box. So he had to pretend that he got some kind of deal out of Mexico. And of course, you know, Mexico is happy to cooperate. I mean, they they just assume, uh, you know, help Trump out. I mean, these leaders always want to try to help each other out. You know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Maybe Trump owes something now. Uh, to Mexico because the Mexicans went along with with the show and in, in, in just pretending that, hey, this is this brand new deal that we just came up with, right? Ignoring the fact that they had already pretty much come to these terms. Uh, so the president didn't actually get anything extra. And the reason why it makes sense to me that the New York Times article is right and it's not fake news is that if what Trump is saying now is true, if Trump actually hammered out this deal with Mexico months ago, right? All these points. But the Mexicans, for whatever reason, have just not committed to it or they have, they've been dragging their feet and they haven't actually did what they said they were going to do, right? If there really were these points, Trump would have basically said, look, Mexico, uh, we had a deal. We negotiated these terms. Here is what you agreed to do. And you're not doing it. I'm tired of waiting. So you know what? If you don't get you know, a move on, if you don't you know, start implementing what we agreed in principle to do, well, then we're going to put these tariffs on. And I'm going to give you to Monday or whatever to start doing it. Right? He would have referenced uh, these particular points, but he didn't reference anything. He wasn't specific at all. He just said, I'm going to put these tariffs on Mexico unless they do something, unless they uh, find a way to cut back on illegal immigrants and immigration. And, you know, I don't even know what they're going to do or what they have to do. Just if if I'm satisfied, you know, the tariffs are going to stay on and I'm going to keep on raising them and raising them, raising them every month until I'm satisfied that you've done enough. I mean, if he then ends up agreeing to points that had already been discussed and agreed upon in the past, then why weren't those points uh, specifically referenced as what what Mexico needs to do? I mean, the whole thing to me makes sense that Trump is just trying to claim credit uh, for a victory when nothing has been won. And it makes sense. I mean, this is, you know, the way the president operates. I mean, he's a good politician. He's a good showman. And that's what he's doing. It's spin, right? He is putting the best possible spin on the situation. And if a newspaper calls him out, oh, this is fake news. And of course, that's red meat to Trump's base. And of course, Trump does have a point in that oftentimes the news is fake. You know, that's the problem where when you you cry wolf all the time, when there's no wolf, uh, then eventually when you find, when you see one, nobody believes you. And that may be the case with the New York Times because they, there has been a lot of fake news. Uh, and, uh, and so now maybe when they get something legitimate, as far as Trump's base is concerned, well, it's just another time you cried wolf. Now, of course, the Democrats, you know, they believe all the bad news about Trump, uh, real or fake. It doesn't matter. Uh, they don't even care. They just want bad news. But, you know, I think that more people over time will figure out that when it came to these tariffs, the president was all bark and no bite. It wasn't really a high stakes poker that he was playing and he won. He actually folded. He lost. He was bluffing. And the Mexicans called his bluff 
they didn't agree to anything that they hadn't already agreed to, but they allowed the president to pretend that they did just so he can save face. And of course, yeah, I mean, Mexico doesn't want uh, the tariffs on American consumers. They just assume be able to sell more products into the American market. Uh, so they're happy to cooperate with the president uh, and help, uh, you know, diffuse this. And also, of course, I do think the president still wants this uh, uh, USMCA that he believes is so much better than uh, NAFTA. And so in order to get the USMCA, he's got to make peace uh, with Mexico. So that's what's happening. But, you know, the Chinese are probably looking at this and they're thinking, oh, you know, all we have to do is hold on because the president is bluffing. He at the end of the day, he understands, despite all of his rhetoric, he understood the dangers to the U.S. economy from imposing these tariffs on Mexico. And so he's probably not going to follow through with all these threats about really jacking up uh, tariffs on Americans who want to buy Chinese goods. Although if you listen to the president today, and he talked a lot, in fact, I listened to him on CNBC, he actually called in on the phone. I'm sure the president requested this call, right? Probably not CNBC, because they'd probably want, they'd want, they'd have him on constantly if they could get him. So he probably had his people call up CNBC and said, hey, I want to do a phone interview. And of course, you know, they're excited to do that. But why? Why CNBC? Because of the stock market, right? He knows that what he talks about on CNBC, he's talking to investors, he's talking to stock buyers, and he wants to talk up the stock market, right? That's the barometer of, of Trump's success. But one of the things he talked about in this interview with CNBC is how he believes uh, the tariffs are already negatively affecting China, that he doesn't think they're negatively affecting America. In fact, he still claims that a big reason for the higher than expected GDP in the first quarter, remember we got that 3.1% number, he says that's because of the tariffs. I mean, it has nothing to do with the tariffs. It has to do with a fluke in the deflator, and it had to do with uh, inventory build. So if anything, that might have had to do with the tariffs, where people were trying to hurry up and import stuff ahead of the tariffs. But that's just a, you know borrowing from the second quarter and bringing that forward. But he actually believes that the GDP bump was because of some positive impact that the tariffs have had on the U.S. economy, which is complete nonsense. It hasn't had a positive impact, but he doesn't think that prices have gone up for Americans. Now, I don't know. I mean, the tariffs have just been implemented. And yes, it probably takes some time for those tariffs to move through uh, the price chain, especially if some of the companies uh, imported a bunch of stuff before the tariffs went into effect. And so on those products, they didn't have to raise prices because they hadn't been subject to the tariff yet. So there could be a pipeline where the tariffs are going to hit uh, the consumer with a little bit of a lag. And of course, some of the tariffs initially could simply show up as smaller profit margins for U.S. companies until they ultimately pass those on, which is what they're going to do. But the president kept basically saying that China was uh, swallowing these tariffs. He said one way they were doing it was you know, causing their currency to go down, manipulating their currency. And so that was uh, nullifying some of the effects. And yes, you know, the Chinese currency has gone down a bit uh, be, you know, during the tariffs. But I don't think this is something that the Chinese are deliberately doing. I think the markets are moving the Chinese currency lower and the Chinese government is simply allowing that market movement to take place uh, because of the perception among currency traders of how bad this is for the Chinese economy. And so it is weakening the Chinese currency. And maybe there are even people in China who are selling Chinese currency because they're worried 
about how this will impact their currency. Or maybe they're trying to front one uh, a devaluation. Because remember, a lot of people believe, and I think they're wrong, that China will deliberately depreciate its currency in order to offset the effects of the tariffs, which, again, is like throwing themselves on a grenade uh, that was meant for Americans. I don't think they're going to do that. But I believe that a lot of people do. And so if you believe that the Chinese government as a policy is going to try to devalue the yuan, well, then what do you want to do? You want to sell it now, right, in advance of the devaluation so you can buy it back after it's been devalued. So I think that is happening. And yes, that is to an extent offsetting some of the tariffs for Americans, not for the Chinese. But the other thing that Trump said is that the reason that the Chinese are willing to just you know, lower their prices to offset the tariffs is because they want the jobs, right? They want all these jobs associated with producing all these products that are being sold to Americans. And so even if they have to sell the products at a loss, they don't care because these jobs are so important to them that they're going to do whatever they have to keep them. But again, this is nonsense and it misses the whole point, but it, this is a common uh, misunderstanding. I mean, the president is not alone in being naive uh, when it comes to this aspect of economics, but jobs are not an ends. They are a means. You don't want a job because you enjoy the work, at least most people. Most people are toiling uh, because there's something at the end of that. They're working because they want food, they want to make the rent, they want to make their car payments, they want to be able to travel or you know entertain or support their family, right? People are working as a means to an end. Most people, if they could skip their job and just get the paycheck, that's exactly what they would do. Uh, so people don't work for just the fun of it. They work because they want to get paid. And it wouldn't make any sense for the Chinese to have jobs that don't result in, 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 in real production. Because if the Chinese simply want to work, right, and just give stuff to Americans, well, they could just work and give stuff to themselves. I mean, I've said that before. Then at least they get the stuff and the jobs, which is better than just getting the jobs and not the stuff, right? Where if we get the stuff and don't have to work, that's a win for us because we get something for nothing. The Chinese get nothing for something. And so the idea that they're going to continue to export to us just so their people can have jobs makes no sense. And again, the purpose of exports, exports are also a means to an end. Exports are to pay for your imports. So you can buy the stuff you need. You sell some of the stuff you have. And what a lot of people overlook is that China doesn't have this massive trade surplus with the entire world. They have a massive trade surplus with America, right? They have a deficit with most other countries. So they have to take the money they earn selling to us and they use it to buy the stuff they need from other people. Now, of course, that begs the question, if China is not paying fair, if China is cheating, why does Japan have a surplus with China? Why does Germany have a surplus with China? I mean, why don't they cheat Germany? Why don't they cheat China? I mean, they only cheat us, right? We, they, they play fair with everybody but us? No. I mean, the reason that we have a big deficit with China is because we don't make the stuff that the Chinese want. But the Germans do, the Japanese do, plenty of other countries have surpluses with China, right? So obviously it's not, you know, impossible to have a surplus with China. So China still needs to earn money so it can pay for imports from other countries. And so it's not going to waste its resources just making stuff for us. In fact, you know, Trump, one of the things he said again today, and he's said this before, is he said that Trump or the United States is the piggy bank. 
right, that everybody wants to rob. We're the piggy bank that everybody wants to rob. We're the world's biggest debtor, right? Our piggy bank is just full of IOUs. What are they going to steal, right? We're not only are we the world's biggest debtor, but we owe more money than all the other debtor nations in the world combined, right? Um, you know, so we're the biggest debtor in the history of the world. You, you can't rob our bank. The bank is empty. There's nothing left to steal because it's already gone. You know, and the other aspect of this is all we've got in our bank, right, is Federal Reserve notes that are notes for nothing because the Federal Reserve won't give you anything real for those notes. It's just a piece of paper, or in many cases, it's not even a piece of paper because it just exists digitally. We create it out of thin air. We don't have to expend any real resources to create deposits, bank deposits, right? It just happens, right? And, and that's all they can take from us. But in order to get that, they have to give us all these products, right? All the products that Americans get, you know, the Chinese have to expend real resources, land, labor, capital, all have to be employed in order to produce the goods that we are getting in exchange for the money that we create out of thin air. So who is robbing whom? And of course, if the Chinese did not devote these resources to producing goods for Americans to get Federal Reserve notes, those resources would still be there. They could still utilize those resources for other purposes. They can produce things and export them to other nations in exchange for things that they want, or they can use those resources to satisfy their own needs and their own desires and produce things that they want, right? That is, resources are scarce, they're not unlimited, so any resources that are devoted to producing stuff for Americans are resources that they can't use to produce stuff for themselves. So this is a bunch of nonsense that we have a piggy bank that the world is robbing. We are looting the world of their stuff. That's what's going on. Of course, the only other person that really pointed this out, I noticed uh, Jeff Gunlock on his uh, Twitter feed, he, he, he pointed the same thing out. And he was referencing our unfunded liabilities of God knows a hundred some odd trillion plus. I mean, yes, I mean, we are deeply in debt. There is no money in the bank, so there is nothing to steal. But Trump said a lot of nonsense, you know, during this uh, CNBC interview. I'm sure it's up on the website, CNBC, or maybe on YouTube by now, if you didn't catch it live. But I will give you some of the important points. I mean, in particular, one of the things that Trump said is that he pointed to the stock market and how much wealth has been created since he's been president based on the value of the stock market, right? All that stock market wealth, and it's much higher now than it was when he was elected. And he said that in China, the stock market's gone down since he was elected. So we're winning and China is losing, but the scoreboard that the president is using to tell who's winning and losing is the stock market. But that is not what Trump was saying about the stock market when he was a candidate, because the stock market went way up under Barack Obama, right? I mean, the president had to concede that the stock market went up, but the president said, who cares about that? Because it's just a big, fat, ugly bubble. So when he wanted to be president, he said that a strong stock market uh, was not indicative of a successful economy. I mean, he wanted to make America great again, even though the stock market had moved up substantially under Obama. I mean, if a, a rising stock market made America great, well, why wasn't America great? Because the stock market went way up under Barack Obama. Now, the fact of the matter is President Trump was correct 
uh, when he made those statements. He said it was a bubble, and he said once it pops, then we're going to have to have a day of reckoning. But of course, when you're talking about wealth, right, he's saying we created wealth. Just because the stock price goes up, that doesn't mean wealth is created. Yes, if somebody owns a stock that's gone up in price, that individual can sell that stock for more money. But now somebody else must buy that stock, right? You can't sell your stock unless there's a buyer. So there isn't any real wealth that's created. There is assets created for the guy who sells. But now the person who's buying the stock has to pay more for those company shares. But the actual stock that's being bought, the wealth there is just the physical plant and equipment and the, you know, the patents and the intellectual property, the real tangible and intangible assets of the companies. That's the actual wealth, right? That's the wealth, or maybe they've developed some property, they have some buildings. The stock price is just what we want to agree at a moment in time the wealth is worth. But just putting a, a price on something doesn't mean actual wealth has been created. We're, you know, it, it's, it's just on paper, right? It's just a number. The number doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean that we have more wealth because the number can evaporate, right? Any price that can go up. I talked about uh, yesterday on Beyond Meat, right, about how that stock has just gone through the stratosphere and up again today, another 21%. Stock closed at 100 and 68. The high was 186. I mean, this thing is headed quickly towards $200. But every time this thing goes up, is it really creating any more wealth? Not really. I mean, the number of Beyond Meat plants hasn't increased, right? There, you know, none of their actual capital investment has increased just because somebody wants to pay up for the stock price. It doesn't mean anything. It's not real wealth. You know, it, it it's just people agreeing at a moment in time that this is what I'm willing to pay for the wealth that's there. But that doesn't mean any wealth has actually been created just because people agree to exchange their shares. Remember, all the stock isn't trading. You're only talking about a small number of shares, a small percentage of the company that's changing hands, and now all of a sudden we're gonna value all the shares at the same price. But, you know, it's all pretend money, right? Because everybody isn't selling. I mean, what if everybody agreed not to sell? If we all agreed not to sell, Right? Well, the price could keep going up. Right, That's what's happening with cryptocurrencies. I mean, not that everybody has agreed not to sell, although maybe you've got a lot of these whales that are all, hey, we're not going to sell, right? Let the price go up. But if nobody were to sell their Bitcoin, if everybody just agreed, right? Because there's a certain quantity of Bitcoin, right? And if everybody said, hey, we're not going to sell, well, I mean, obviously, if somebody wanted to buy even, you know, one Satoshi, right, the price could go through the roof if every single person agreed not to sell. But everybody's just playing a game. We're all agreeing that something has value, even though we could change our minds. And just pretending, right, that something is worth a lot of money doesn't make it so, right? You can pretend for a while, but eventually reality crashes the pretense and everything comes falling down. So paper stock market wealth comes and goes, right? It's ephemeral. It's not real. What's real wealth is your investment in, in land, in property, right? In technology, in infrastructure, right? That's real wealth. The price that we want to assign to it means nothing because it can change uh, all the time. And, you know, when you have Donald Trump now trying to basically claim that his presidency is a success and he's going to measure that on the stock market and he's going to claim, hey, we've got all this wealth because of the stock market. What happens if the stock market goes down? What happens if he's running for re-election 
and the stock market is lower than when he took office. Is he just going to concede and say, well, don't vote for me because the stock market is down. That means I did a bad job because basically that's what he should say. You know, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Well, if your sword is stock market performance, the same thing is going to happen. And you know, why is the stock market higher today than it was when Trump was elected? Because of the Fed. It's because the Fed decided to stop raising rates. It's because the Fed is now talking about cutting rates and doing more quantitative easing. If the Federal Reserve stayed on its trajectory that it was on initially, and it had, had it continued to normalize interest rates, had we followed up the December rate hike with another rate hike in March, and if the Fed was saying, hey, we're going to raise again in June, if we were going to get another rate hike this month, if the Fed was continuing on autopilot with quantitative tightening, the stock market, based on how fast it was falling in December, would already be lower than it was when Donald Trump uh, won the election. Right? So it's all because of the Fed. Now, of course, now Trump wants to blame the Fed for the fact that the economy isn't doing even better. Trump frequently criticized the Fed. Uh, during his interview today with CNBC, he was calling out the Fed for making the mistake of raising interest rates. He said they raised interest rates too quickly. And then he said they shouldn't have done quantitative tightening. He said that was a mistake, right? So they shouldn't have done any balance sheet shrinking, even though they promised to do it. And of course, if the economy was really as strong as Donald Trump claimed, right, the greatest economy in the history of America why would the Fed not take the opportunity to shrink the balance sheet during the greatest economy in the history of America? Because they had said they were going to do it. That was a key part. In fact, the most important part about quantitative easing, and the only reason that it looked to have succeeded, was because of the promise to unwind the policy when the emergency was over. Well, if we couldn't unwind the policy and shrink the balance sheet, during the greatest economy in the history of America, well, then when could we do it? I mean, clearly you can't wait for the next recession to unwind it. So the only time the Fed could have unwound it was during a good economy. Yet Trump was saying that that was a mistake, that the Fed should not have even tried to do what they were claiming they would do uh, since day one on quantitative easing, which was reduced the balance sheet and reverse the process. He said it was a mistake for the Fed to do that. Now, if... Uh, Trump's goal was for the bubble not to deflate. Yes, well, I guess the Fed made a mistake. But remember, another thing that Donald Trump did as a candidate, he was extremely critical of the Fed, of Janet Yellen. And in fact, one of the reasons he didn't want to reappoint Janet Yellen was because he was so critical of her as a candidate. And if you go back and listen to what Donald Trump criticized Janet Yellen for doing, it was for keeping rates too low. It was for being too loose with monetary policy. It was about using monetary policy to artificially goose this stock market, to make the economy look better, to make Barack Obama look better. The Fed was doing political things, and Trump was calling out the Fed. And that also uh, was uh, a, a message that resonated with a lot of the like Ron Paul-type Republicans, right, because Trump was criticizing the Fed the way Ron Paul did, right? Hey, the Fed is too easy. They're blowing bubbles, right? This is bad for the long term. It's a sugar high. It's, you know, it's artificial. It's heroin. It's going to wear off. We're going to have a hangover, right? He was saying the same stuff I was saying when he was a candidate and he was appealing 
uh, to those voters. Well, now he's still criticizing the Fed, but for the exact opposite reason of what he criticized before. In fact, now he's criticizing the Fed for not doing exactly what he criticized them for doing before. He is criticizing the Fed for being too tight. He's saying they raised interest rates too much. They, they shrunk their balance sheet. They shouldn't have done that. In other words, now he's criticizing the Fed for not doing what the Fed did when um, Barack Obama was president, exactly what Trump criticized the Fed for doing for Trump. He's now criticizing the Fed for not doing it for him. Well, you can't have your cake and eat it too unless you're Donald Trump because that's all he does, right? Everything is hypocritical. Everything he's saying now as the president is the opposite of what he said when he was a candidate. But, you know, Trump is going to get his rate cuts, right? He's going to get the rate cuts that he wants, but it's going to be for reasons that he was doesn't want to acknowledge. The Fed is going to be cutting rates because the economy is so weak. It's because the economy is headed for a recession. It's because the stock market would be going into a bear market uh, without the Fed uh, saving it with rate cuts. So if Trump wants to claim credit for how strong the stock market is and the economy, yet both have to be saved by the Fed, the economy is so strong, yet it needs crutches. The economy is so strong that we have to go back to the same emergency measures that we needed when it was the worst economy since the Great Depression? How can the worst economy since the Great Depression and the greatest economy in history both need the same stimulus? Both need to rely on the same crutches in order to hobble along. Obviously, it's because the economy today is no different now than it was before Trump was elected. The only difference is the stock market bubble is bigger and we have more debt. So the overall bubble is bigger and that means we need even more of the very stimulus that Trump criticized the Fed for delivering as a candidate, we need more of it now because Trump does not want to make America great again. He just wants to have a second term. And to have a second term, he needs to keep the air in the bubble. Meanwhile, you know, he's wasting his presidency, he's squandering this term, he's wasting political capital, you know, on tariffs and all this nonsense. What Trump should be doing is using his popularity within the Republican Party to get the Republicans to actually do what the Tea Party started out doing, you know, initially when everybody was right to oppose the deficits under Barack Obama. He should be expending his political capital on shrinking the government, on making government smaller, on abolishing departments, on abolishing agencies, on cutting entitlements and reforming them. And there, there's all sorts of things that haven't been done because it was a swamp, right? You had all these professional politicians and all they cared about was getting reelected. So they didn't want to make any of the difficult choices. Difficult meaning, you know, you, you risk not getting reelected, right? Because they they were career politicians. They're, they're in the swamp. They want to stay in the swamp. So why isn't Trump doing that? Why isn't he draining the swamp? Why isn't he there as a non-politician as a statesman saying, hey, I got elected to not be a politician. I'm going to solve the problems that politicians have created. Instead, he is doing exactly what politicians did. Maybe he has a different style, but it's the same thing. No government cuts. Nothing is being cut. The deficits are running out of control. Government is getting bigger, right? We're going deeper and deeper into debt. And he's pretending like something is different, but nothing is different. It's all exactly the same, except now 
the collapse is going to get blamed on capitalism because he's going to give it a bad name. It's going to get blamed on Republicans because he's going to tarnish that brand. And all the Republicans who are career politicians, right? I mean, they have no choice but to support Trump because he's so popular. So I get why normal Republicans just want to, you know, support Trump because they all they give a damn about is their career. Well, why does Trump give a damn? You know, I mean, if I were in Trump's place, I wouldn't care if I got reelected. I would just try to do the best job I could during the term of office that I had. Because A, there's no guarantee that you're going to have a second term. And B, I don't think that once Trump gets reelected, he's going to go back to candidate Trump. Right? So he's, he's going to do the same stuff in his second term that he did in his first term. And if we're not in a massive recession before his first term is over, we'll certainly be in one early in his second term. And then what is he going to do? More of the same. He's not going to be able to turn on a dime and admit that everything he did in his first term was wrong. And so now he's going to do the opposite. No, he's going to he's going to do more of the same. And of course, that's all the Fed does is more of the same. In fact, I don't know why more people are not questioning this. I'm reading all these articles now about how the Fed is going to go back to quantitative easing. Uh, they're going to cut rates and going back to zero. And nobody is saying, wait a minute, how can we do this now? Is there a financial crisis coming? Is this another once in a century event? I mean, the reason the Fed got away with it the first time is because they were able to point to the gravity of this crisis that, oh my God, we're on the verge of the banks were going to fail. There was going to be no money coming out of the ATMs. This was going to be Armageddon. Okay, we have to you know, abandon capitalism. That's what George Bush said, this is so bad that we have to abandon capitalism in order to save capitalism, right? This is, you know, we have to do all this emergency stuff. Of course, it wasn't capitalism that caused the problem. We abandoned capitalism a long time ago. What we needed to do was embrace capitalism to really solve it. Instead, we abandoned it even more to blow up an even bigger bubble than the one the government had inflated the first time. But that was the, the, the environment. It was This was an emergency. This is like, oh my God, nothing could possibly ever be this bad. And we've got to just do all this unconventional stuff, right? That, and that was the backdrop that they got away with it. But now, I mean, people are saying that this next recession, even if we have one, and most people don't even think one's coming, but maybe, I don't know, maybe it's 50-50, maybe we get a recession, but just about everybody who believes that there's going to be a recession, they think it's going to be mild. Oh, it's going to be a mild recession. It's not even going to be as bad as your typical recession, yet the Fed is gearing up the same big guns. Oh, we may have a mild recession, so we got to do more quantitative easing. We got to go back down to zero. Why? I mean, in a mild recession, we've got to do the same unconventional emergency measures. And again, if the entire time the Fed was telling us that QE is temporary and reversible and 0% interest rates are temporary, we're going to normalize rates, we're going to shrink our balance sheet, right? If that was part of the policy, if the normalization and the unwinding of the balance sheet was part of the program, and now we get to the point where we're on the verge of maybe a mild recession. And now the Fed is already talking about going back to zero and just blowing up the balance sheet even bigger. Because if we have to do another round of QE, the balance sheet is going to end up larger than it was by far than before they started to shrink it. Right? And so if the Fed cannot deliver on that, if the Fed can't reverse the policy, 
if the policy proves to be unreversible, that also proves it was a failure because the most important part of the policy was the exit strategy, was the unwind, because without the ability to do that, then it was just debt monetization, you know, uh, banana republic style. Like I said on the last podcast, it was just monetization. It was like, what was the difference between us and, and Argentina or Zimbabwe or the Weimar, Weimar Republic? The difference was supposed to be they did it permanently. They were a permanent source of financing government debt. And we just had it as an emergency. We just did, you know, we, we just did it a little bit. We, we were going to unwind it, right? We weren't doing it for keeps. We were just oh, short term. We were going to buy these bonds while there's this huge emergency. And then as soon as the emergency was over, oh, yeah, we're going to unwind it. Oh, we're just going down to zero. It's an emergency. And then, oh, we're going to let rates go back to normal. Well, if that doesn't happen, that is an admission by the Fed that their policy was a complete failure. Now, if their policy was a complete failure, why do it again? Right? I mean, isn't that the definition of insanity, right? Doing something over and over again and expecting a different result. Well, if the policy of QE and 0% interest rate failed before, and we know it failed because they can't reverse it, because as soon as you get a mild recession, you got to go right back to it. I mean, they haven't, you know, outlawed the business cycle. So if it didn't work, why do it again? And that's because that's all they know. They're never going to do the right thing. They're just going to keep on doing the wrong thing until they can't do the wrong thing anymore because it blows up. And that's what's going to happen this next time, as I've been saying, because the key to the appearance of success is being able to maintain the pretense that it's temporary and you can unwind it. But when we go back to permanent QE uh, and uh, and 0% again, nobody is going to believe it. In fact, here we have the same nonsense coming from the ECB. In fact, one of the reasons that the price of gold went down on Sunday night was because on Sunday night, the ECB you know floated a trial balloon about cutting rates. All of a sudden, now they're talking about rate cuts and you know that hurt um, the euro, which hurt gold. Because right now, I mean, anything that makes the euro weaker makes gold weaker, even if what the ECB is threatening to do should be good for gold. They're talking about more inflation, printing more money. The eurozone is a larger economy than the United States. In total, they have a higher GDP than we do. The whole, uh, you know, eurozone, not any individual country, but all the countries that are sharing the common currency, right? And if they're going to have more inflation, well, that should be bullish for gold. And eventually it will be. Eventually, anything bearish for a major currency is going to be bullish for gold. But right now, everybody is keying off the dollar, right? That's temporary. That's not going to always be like that. But for now, hey, if the dollar goes up because the euro is going down, that's bad for gold, even if what's causing the euro to go down is the ECB talking about printing more euros and creating more inflation, which should be good for gold and should cause Europeans to want to buy gold uh, to protect themselves from that. But if you actually look at what, or read rather, what the ECB said, they said, well, we, it may be appropriate to cut rates if the economy slows and if inflation weakens or inflation expectations become unanchored, which I guess they didn't even have to say that because that just goes without saying, right? I mean, duh, that's what they're going to do. Again, not because it works, because it failed, because they've been doing that policy. Look, if cheap money was the solution, the problem would have been solved a long time ago. You can't get much cheaper than negative. You know, look at Japan. I mean, you lower your interest rates down to zero and you still don't get the result that you want. Maybe, maybe that's not the right answer. 
Maybe low interest rates are not the solution to the problem, but they never ask these questions because it's completely insane or because they're afraid to deal with the political pain of actually doing the right thing. So they're not really concerned about doing the right thing. They just want to kick the can down the road so they don't have to do the right thing. But the fact that they came out and said, oh, you know, we're going to cut rates if the economy slows or if inflation slows. I mean, there's no reason to even say that unless you're just hoping that the mere talking of rate cuts, right, opening the door to a rate cut, right, aha, this is going to uh, cause the euro to go down because they still want the euro to go down because they want more inflation. Well, they're going to succeed in getting more inflation. They're going to get a lot more inflation than they bargained for. And, you know, I don't know why why they're upset if they think that in, that people don't expect enough inflation. That's what they mean when they talk about expectations are anchored. They want people to believe that there's going to be more inflation uh, uh, and they don't want them to think there won't be. But with all the debt, too, that there is in the eurozone, you would think that they would not want people to think there's going to be a lot of inflation, right? Because it is the expectation of inflation that really drives interest rates. Because if you are a lender and you expect a lot of inflation, you're not going to loan money unless you get paid a high enough rate of interest to cover what you expect the inflation rate to be. The same thing for the U.S. Everybody has all this debt. And one of the main reasons that the interest rates are so low is because people don't expect a lot of inflation. Now, they're wrong. They're going to get a lot of inflation. That's why the bond market is so mispriced. But it makes no sense for the governments that are issuing all this debt to try to get people to expect more inflation. Because if they succeed, they're the biggest losers. Because as people expect more inflation, they demand a higher rate of interest. And that means the governments are forced to pay a higher rate of interest, which they can't. So the best thing the governments can do is to keep the people fooled, keep the wool over their eyes long enough so they can keep selling all these low-priced bonds because people are still foolish enough not to think there's just going to be a lot of inflation when there's going to be massive inflation. And while I'm talking about uh, the price of gold, you know, Bitcoin got a lift on Sunday night. From the sell-off in gold, I mean, Bitcoin had been really weak all, all weekend. And I think just throughout the time where gold opened, Bitcoin was trading below 7,600. You know, it had fallen back down from a little over 8,000. It got down, I saw it trading 7,500 and change. But when the gold market opened down, uh, that's kind of when Bitcoin stopped falling. And, you know, over, over overnight and through this morning, Bitcoin rallied back above 8,000. And I think the main impetus for that rally was the weakness in the price of gold. I think we have been seeing a bit of a negative correlation between Bitcoin and gold. And I think I'm reading other um, articles that are pointing this negative correlation out, which again, if that's going to hold, if we do get a big breakout in the price of gold above 1350, which is what I expect, then I would also expect there to be a breakdown in the price of Bitcoin. Now, I know a lot of people think, wait, you know, gold and Bitcoin, it's the same thing, right? They're both hedging against a weakness in fiat currencies, but I don't think so. I think that Bitcoin's uh, claim to fame as a hedge is that, well, gold's not doing anything and Bitcoin is beating it. And so uh, gold is manipulated. Gold can't go up. The central bankers are in control. And so gold's never going to go anywhere. And so I'm going to buy Bitcoin because the central banks aren't involved. right? And initially, too, they used to say that, oh, there's futures markets in gold. And so it's manipulated. But of course, now there's futures markets in Bitcoin, too. And all of a sudden, you know, they don't care about that. But I do think that when gold really starts to move, 
then people won't look for an alternative to gold. Once gold starts performing and delivering returns, then nobody's going to look for a cheap substitute. And that cheap substitute over the last several years has been Bitcoin. Oh, you know, by the way, too, one other thing that Donald Trump mentioned, I wonder if this is going to happen when he was talking about Paris on CNBC, he mentioned France and their wines. And he said, you know, we got to put some tariffs on French wine. Uh, and, you know, so if you if you like French wine, uh, maybe you should stock up on it now, because if we slap tariffs on, on French wine, the French vineyards are not going to pay it. It's going to be paid by the Americans who want to buy French wine. Now, obviously, you know, there's plenty of wine that you could buy here in California, right? We make a lot of wine. But my guess would be that if we impose heavy tariffs on foreign wine to the point that we stop importing the foreign wine, the domestic wines are going to go up in price because they're going to have less competition, right? Not as much uh, international wine is going to come in. And so, you know, there'll be more demand for the domestic wine. And so those prices are going to go up. But at least there, we do have the ability to substitute, right? At least they'll have some winners, right? Uh, American uh, vineyards will win, right? At the expense of the American consumer, because they'll be able to sell more of their wine at a higher price because the consumer is getting taxed for buying an import. But most of the products uh, that China is producing that we're talking about putting tariffs on, there is no substitute. And again, you know, I'm hearing the president talking again today about the ones on the, the tariffs on, on uh, Mexico. He said, well, if we had these tariffs, you'd be amazing how fast American companies just build factories in America and start hiring American workers. Yeah, how are they going to do that? I mean, he thinks like overnight, like if we leave Mexico, we're just going to resurrect this entire, uh, you know, capacity and, and, and all these plants. They're just going to be there. And he almost said the same thing in China. Like, oh, you know, the company, the jobs are leaving China. All the industries are leaving China. They're not going to leave China. I mean, if you've got all that infrastructure already there, You've invested all that money in plant and equipment. You just can't pull it out and move it to some other country. It's so much easier for the Chinese to find a different buyer. It's a big world out there. A lot of people want stuff. A lot of people need stuff. It's a lot easier to find a different buyer for your goods than to transfer the entire production chain and supply chain and rip it out of, uh, out of uh, China and rebuild it someplace else just so you can keep selling to Americans who can't afford to pay because we're buying on credit. I mean, this is ridiculous. None of this is going to happen. This is all the fantasy in the mind of President Trump. But again, the Republicans are reading all this stuff up. They're believing all this. But this is going to end in tears because we are headed for this massive recession. And most likely we will be in it before the election. The election is not until... Uh, November of 2020. It's a year and a half away. That's a long time for the U.S. economy to sink into recession. And that's a lot of voters who are going to be very disillusioned. A lot of voters who were sold a bill of goods, particularly in the swing states, right? In, you know, the Rust Belt, these Reagan Democrats that, you know, finally came back and voted Republican because they believed what Trump was saying. Well, they bought a bill of goods because nothing has changed for them. Their standard of living is not going up. What's going up is their debts. And, and they're in the same uh, predicament that they were before Trump was elected, except now they're going to be very susceptible to the left, just like they tried the right, or they think they did, and, 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 they, and, and Trump let them down. 
Now they're going to be attracted to socialism and the promises, the false promises of government, the something for nothing. This is the foundation uh, that we have laid. And, you know, this is the bed that we've made that unfortunately we're going to end up lying in. Oh, finally, what I wanted to bring up, it's something I, a point that I, I, I alluded to on my podcast yesterday, but I didn't quite make it, I think, as, as strongly as I should have. And that has to do with all the mistakes that investors made over the years because they believed the Fed, because they believed the Fed when it said that it had an exit strategy, that it was going to unwind its balance sheet and normalize interest rates. And I talked about that, but I wanted to talk a little bit about the biggest mistake that investors made, and that was in the foreign exchange market. That was buying the dollar. That is what powered the dollar. It was the idea that the U.S. was going to be tightening, that the U.S. was going to be raising rates and shrinking its balance sheet while the rest of the world was still doing QE and, and stuck at zero. Because remember, we went down to zero before Europe, right? We did QE before Europe. So we were supposed to be first in and first out. And so traders were looking into the future and they were betting on that. They were uh, discounting these events and they were buying the dollar, particularly in 2014 and really in 2015. That's when the dollar surged because that's when everybody all of a sudden believed that it worked, right? They remember that's when gold dropped two, $300 an ounce in like two days or 400. I mean, it got killed. All of a sudden, everybody was like, aha, it worked. And now the Fed is going to raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet, right? And people were buying dollars and they bought dollars for years and years thinking that this was going to happen. But everybody who did that was wrong. Of course, they made a bunch of money doing it on paper, right? I mean, everybody who was wrong about the Fed's ability to shrink their balance sheet and normalize interest rates, if they bought the dollar, they still made a bunch of money on paper. I mean, some of them might have already gotten out of the trade. Now, of course, a lot of the people, the vast majority, are going to overstay their welcome and they're going to ride it all the way back down. They're, they're still in the dollar. Obviously, the vast majority of dollar buyers are still long because if they tried to sell, the market would be much lower. So the reason the dollar is still strong is because people are still long. And in fact, people are still buying. They, they're, 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 they still haven't you know, figured this out yet. But the, the, the fact that the dollar went up based on so many people being so wrong about the Fed. See, I was right about the Fed all along. Right? I was saying, they can't do this. This is a bunch of nonsense. And I was out of the dollar waiting for the markets to figure it out. And of course, I've been waiting for years. It's taken forever, you know, many, many years longer than I thought. You know, basically, what I did is I overestimated the intelligence of everybody else to figure this out. I mean, to me, it was so obvious. It was crystal clear to me that this was a bunch of BS, that the Fed couldn't do this. And it was amazing that so many other people, professionals in the financial industry, couldn't see it either. Now, maybe they could see it, but they didn't care, right? You have that, was it was it Jamie Dimon that says, hey, when the music's playing, we got to dance, right? We don't care. Even if we know it's going to end and we don't believe it, we're dancing as long as they're playing, right? And I, you know, I don't want to play that game. I want to make sure that I'm positioned when the music stops because most people won't be, right? And then all the paper profits evaporate and you know, it doesn't do your clients any good if you've lost all their money. I mean, maybe you made a lot of money uh, on paper while they thought they were making money, right? Because their accounts were going up and you kept taking your fees. And when the market collapses, you don't have to give back your fees, right? Even if it turns out that you were wrong. I mean, a lot of these hedge funds too, 
who are taking 20% of the ups, right? So they're, they're in these bubbles and every year they bet on the bubble and they take 20% of their clients' profits. But then if the bubble bursts and all the profits are lost, in fact, most of the principal and their clients end up losing a lot of money. Yes, they were making money for a while on paper, but they didn't cash out. And then the bubble burst and they end up with huge losses. The hedge fund managers don't give up, give back the 20% of fees that they took every year. They get to keep that money. Even if in the long run, they deliver losses to their clients because they take their, their, their fees in the short run. And I don't want my clients to be in that predicament. I want my clients to win the game. I want them having all the chips right? When the game is over, I don't want them to have a big stack, but then go home busted, right? I want them to have everybody else's chips, all the other people who had big stacks in the beginning, right? Didn't understand the game, didn't realize that they were patsies and they lose everything, right? I want to be the guy that goes home the winner, not the guy that regrets the fact that he had a big stock and he lost when he was busted. And that's when he stopped playing because he ran out of money. But the other problem of the dollar is that the, the fact that so many people were wrong, about the Fed's ability to do what it was going to do, and they bought the dollar, that was the whole key to this whole phony recovery. Because the dollar staying strong, that kept the lid on inflation. That allowed the Fed to claim that there wasn't enough inflation, and so they can keep on creating more. They can keep interest rates lower for longer because the strong dollar, you know, basically was a get-out-of-jail-free card because the strong dollar kept the lid on consumer prices as they kept printing more money. And that also kept longer-term interest rates low. Because the dollar was strong, uh, people were around the world who had savings were willing to buy dollars to capitalize on a strengthening dollar. We benefited all the money, all the fear money. People were worried about Europe or worried about Asia. All that money was piling into the dollar. That kept our interest rates lower than they otherwise would have been. That made it easier for the government to finance its deficits. And also, a strong dollar strengthened the appeal of U.S. financial assets, of the U.S. stock market, of the U.S. real estate market. If the dollar is strengthening, well, then foreign investors had a reason to want to invest in U.S. assets because they had the wind at their backs from a strengthening U.S. dollar. And so all of that helped Obama. It helped grow the bubble and extend the day of reckoning for far longer than I originally believed. But it was all based on a lie. It was all based on the false belief that the Fed could normalize interest rates and return its balance sheet to the levels that prevailed prior to the financial crisis. None of that was true. It was a lie the whole time, but it was a lie that everybody pretended to believe. But soon, everybody is going to stop pretending. The Fed is going to stop pretending they can do it, and the markets are going to stop pretending to believe them. And now they're going to have to deal with the reality of QE and ZERP, which is massive inflation, stagflation, a collapsing dollar, and a collapsing U.S. economy, a collapsing bond market, and all of it may happen on the watch of a Republican president who is associated with deregulation, tax cuts, capitalism, and just basically hand the 2020 election on a silver platter to a socialist whose uh, cure is going to be to not just double down, but triple down on the failed policies of the past to make government bigger than ever and to run the printing presses faster than ever, ratcheting up the probability of a hyperinflationary outcome, which I've always said is the worst case scenario, but it is becoming more probable with each and every passing day. <music>